Welcome to Open Plaza, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. In this episode, Dr. Tony Lin talks to Dr. Christy Navan Warren about her book, Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland. For more information about today's episode, visit htiopenplaza.org. Welcome to HTI's Open Plaza podcast. My name is Tony Lin, and I am a sociologist and the author of Prosperity Gospel Latinos and Their American Dream. And I'm here with Dr. Christine Navan Warren, who is a professor and the inaugural DADO, VO, and Elizabeth Carl Stiege Chair in Catholic Studies at the University of Iowa, where she has taught since 2012. And today we're here to talk about Chris's newest book, which came out last year, Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland. Welcome, Christy. Thanks so much, Tony. It's good to be here. <laughs> yeah. So, so tell us uh, a little bit about you. Let's, uh, let's introduce Christy yeah. to, the, to the Open Plaza Familia. How did you end up studying you know, being a, a scholar in Catholicism in, uh, at the University of Iowa? Yeah, great question. So I always like to tell people, I'm sort of uh, a lifelong ethnographer. I've always been drawn to groups, especially groups that I'm not like personally a part of. So I grew up Lutheran, white ethnic in Gary, Indiana. Uh, so I am not Catholic and I'm not Latina, although I had many Mexicana friends growing up and um, friends who were from Puerto Rico, so Northwest Indiana. So I had a lot of um, multicultural friends and um, didn't really pick up on Spanish until later in graduate school, but I could understand it. I just wasn't able to speak it. So honestly, I think I've just, I've had sort of a lifelong interest in studying Latinos and Latino Catholicism in particular, just because of where I grew up and there were so many Catholics and Latino Catholics it wasn't really until I did my master's work, though, at Arizona State. It was just a two, you know, it's funny, I think about it. It was only a two-year, it was only in Arizona for two years, but it really transformed my life because I did my master's in religious studies there at Arizona State, and that's when I started working with the Ruiz family, um, in particular Estela, who was a Marian visionary, wrote my MA thesis on her, which ended up becoming my dissertation when I went to Indiana for my PhD, and then became the first book. And so those two years were really transformative. Um, and it's before, you know, like Latino religious studies was a thing, mm -hmm. but I was really drawn to the rituals and devotions and the faith that I saw that was so not like what I was reading about and, and, and seeing other scholars doing. And so I just sort of followed my intuition and uh, my love of the food and the culture and just kind of, I guess, since for the last 20 years or so have just really been a student, you know, I keep trying to understand all the different layers of Latino Catholicism, Latino religions in the U.S., but also increasingly, as, as I know we'll talk about with this new book, Latinos in, in relationship with other, uh, with other migrant refugee groups. And so I'm trying to, in my more recent work, contextualize Latinos with, with other groups who um, have oftentimes lived precarious lives um, because of 
politics and in white privilege in the United States. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, that's amazing. So did you, you started learning Spanish in college, in graduate school yeah. in Arizona. Yeah, yeah, wow. actually not until um, I was in the PhD program in Indiana. I was a French minor in college and I think knowing French helped me you know, I, I could understand Spanish, but I wasn't really able to speak it. So I, I took out a loan, something I tell my grad students to never do. <laughs> I took out a loan uh, and I lived with the family for four months in Cuernavaca. And um, it was a humbling experience because I knew about as much of a, as a four-year-old when I went, but it was immersive and I've, I've tried to keep it up ever since then. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. It's all about humility. Yeah. But that, that's the way you learn though, right? That's, you, you have to immerse yeah. yourself, which is, ethnography right i right. guess that you are an ethnographer right. for heart right. so 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 this book we're talking about meatpacking america it's um it, it's a fascinating book i always say the the best ethnographies are the ones that let you be there without being there and and your book it, it, it took me it took me into into that world without me having to go there and with, with me knowing that I, I don't want to ever go there. So thank you, thank you for, for going there. So, so you were able to, to, to tease out the, the complexities of, the, those, of what was going on in there, the challenges, the, you know, the pains, the, even the feeling, the feeling, you know, I was able to get some, the, how, 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 you, how you would have felt if I was walking in there. So, so that, that, you know, I, I think, for, for most Americans, those of us who, who are carnivores and you know are, are far removed from the source of our, our meat, I, I think it, it, it's eye-opening in that it, it, it's more nuanced than, the, than those PETA videos of you know, abuse. You know, we all know, you know I, I've read that um, you know, the, the fast food books and all of those. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of this, um, you know, clear, clearly it's not the, the best or cleanest way to produce uh, food. But, but you, you go in there with, with an angle to, to understand the, the people and the human cost, right? Really, we, you know, a lot of this narrative, public narrative is about the, 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 the animal abuse and things like that. But, but there is a, a, a human cost to the, to, to the choices we make in, in the things that we eat. Uh, but but I'm I'm curious on how uh, where, you know it, how how did this go from from an idea to you actually dressing up putting on the the whole gear right yeah. IRB approval walking in there yeah you know? no that's such an important question mm -hmm. and and I want to take the opportunity to share that that's what I love about ethnography sort of this method right mm -hmm. this book was originally called Corn Belt Catholicism because it it um, you know, it, it, I, I, the original idea, the plan, when I went into this research project in the fall of 2012 was um, to really compare, I really wanted to understand, because I was seeing and reading about so much migration in rural Iowa and the rural Midwest. And I wanted to understand how rural Catholic religious places, in particular Catholic parishes, I, I think I felt really, um, committed to understanding Catholicism in my new state because of the chair position. And so it was kind of like my way of giving back to the lay Catholics who in part funded my job, I guess. But as, as I, you know, was going through all my interviews that I'd been probably been doing for over three years at that point, every single one of the Latinos I had interviewed 
uh, at the various parishes worked for a meatpacking plant. And in mm. Eastern Iowa, it was all for Tyson or West Liberty Foods. I tried really hard to get access to West Liberty Foods, which is a turkey processing plant in West Liberty. And I've had a lot of students here at the University of Iowa whose parents and grandparents work for West Liberty Foods, but they were not having any of my wanting to go have a tour. But this is how ethnography works. And you know this, Tony, because you're, you're a wonderful ethnographer yourself. I mean, I, you know, I just, as an ethnographer, again, I feel like I'm a lifelong student and I'm comfortable putting myself in that role. And it's really a role I think that requires humilidad. I mean, I, I really have to be humble and I learn so much from my interlocutors. And so one of my main interlocutors is Father Joseph Sia, who himself is a Filipino um, immigrant. And he was, when we worked together during the research process for the book, he was a parish priest uh, for St. Joseph in Columbus Junction. And mm -hmm. the Tyson hog processing plant, as you know, for reading the book is, is right there. It's literally less than a mile from downtown. And I was, we met almost weekly and I was talking, I said, gosh, Father Joseph, you know, everybody in your parish works with every Latino, not the white folks. <laughs> the Latinos work with the packing pots. And I'm like, I said, this might sound crazy, but I would love to, to go to the plant. He goes, I think you should. And so Father Joseph helped me get access. He knew the then chaplain, Joe Blay of the plant. He also knew the then human resources manager, Dave. And so I was able to get access there and it completely transformed the book, you know, mm -hmm. and, and it was scary at first, right? Because, you know, as scholars, we have this idea, you know, I always go into my research wanting, oh, I have an idea of what I want to study, but I think that's why it's been so important for me to not be too wedded to the outcome, right? Because it, it, everything snowballs, right? As you know, you talk to somebody, they tell you to go talk to somebody else. In this case, it was like, wow, what I'm learning from all these different folks is that I need to go to a packing plant. And so I ended up being able to tour um, the Columbus Junction plant. I went there several times. Uh, and then I was thinking, you know, I really would love to get an idea of another plant in Eastern Iowa because mo most of the workers uh, in the Tyson plant, Columbus Junction, have been Latinos from the Northern Triangle, um, increasingly though Congolese uh, and Vietnamese mm. and Burmese. But but the biggest the the I've I've kept track of what's been going on, just having meetings with folks I met. Uh, so it's mostly a Congolese um, uh, workforce now on the line. So I wanted to get another another sense too. And so Iowa Premium Beef was a smaller plant. It was in a different part of. It was more central eastern Iowa. And because I had toured Tyson and had experience there, they were more open to my going there, but I had to be heavily vetted. You know, I went to, I had to go to a board meeting. I think I visited a total four times before I was given permission to conduct research. And so I did a, a total of a whole week there. It was probably close to 70 hours in the plant. So I stayed in a motel up the road and had mm -hmm. my gear and, and, you know, um, it was a very immersive experience. And I appreciate you saying that because that was the goal. I, in some ways, I wanted to discuss the reader. You know, I wanted you to feel what I had felt and what mm -hmm. what a what a typical worker would feel on the line, right? Um, so so that's really what I wanted to get across because I think mm -hmm. it's one thing to say what people are going through, but it's another thing to show. And I wanted to show mm -hmm. via my own embodied experience and in talking with you know, over a hundred workers, you know, what that experience was like. 
Yeah. So, so while while we're on that point, and and I wanted to talk about this the, the ethnography and the and the methodology too later on. But while while we're on that point, help us think through, especially in religious studies, right? Why why is that important? Why why it is important? Why is it important for for students of religion to to understand and get that uh, that that in, the, the understand the embodiment of of that lived experience, right? For, so for for me, as as you know, in, you know, I, I say the ethnography for me. I study Pentecostal, so Pentecostalism. You have to be there for you know. It's just something you you can't really explain. You can there's no really logic or yeah you just have to experience it and you have to be able to to describe it it is so, such an experiential religion uh the what's happening in this in this slaughterhouse is clearly clearly it's it's not so much about doctrine or history or you you can do this archival thing right you you have to be there but why yeah help help the larger audience understand why why embodiment is so important yeah i mean i think that's such a great question i mean as a student of religion yourself, you, you, you know this. I mean, religion is so deeply embodied and, and, and for you know, Catholicism itself is a deeply ritualistic embodied faith. You know, the ingesting of certain things, you know, the, the body and the blood of Christ, right? The crossing of oneself. Um, many of the Latino Catholics I've gotten to know, you know, inscribe themselves with tattoos of the Virgin and, and Jesus, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so eating and drinking and genuflecting, uh, it's, it's such a deeply embodied experience. And I think as an ethnographer um, who really immerses herself in the field, um, it's important for me to show that through their embodied experiences and through my own stories. Um, I think one of the biggest questions I get about this is, so what does do the meatpacking plants like have to do with like embodied religion, right? And I'll be honest, I mean, like, I got one of those Louisville grants and they're amazing. Like they fund all sorts of great projects on religion. And I remember because the project really took shape with the meatpacking after I got in the grant, I remember some folks in my working group were like, wait a minute, what's up with this meat? What, what are you doing here? And there were times when I'm like, oh my gosh, is this a stretch of what am I doing? But the way I, I, I really want to explain to folks is that most of us spend most of our, 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 you know, we, most of us spend most of our waking hours, right? At, at work, right? We go to work and many of us, you know, we don't leave or most of us, right? Folks with particular religious, spiritual persuasions, we don't leave. They, we don't leave that at home and in a little box, we take it with us. We wear it on our bodies. We take it to work. And so what I really wanted to show with that is, you know, all these men and women I talked with before I realized that I really needed to go to a meatpacking plant, like it really wasn't on my radar. Every single one of my interlocutors, um, you know, mostly Latinos were saying, um, you know, I say a prayer before I go to work. You know, I put on my scapular. I pray. I have the rosary under my smock when I'm on the line because it's so dangerous. I mean, I say a prayer. I ask La Virgen to watch over me so I make it home to my family. And so religion is literally worn on the body. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the holy, if we want to call it that, I know it's not really on vogue now, like the sacred and the holy. The holy is there. I wouldn't say the work itself is holy or sacralized for the workers. Um, the way in which my interlockers, the line workers talk about their work is it's a very profane work. They take it seriously. They're proud of what they do, but they don't see this sort of like the blood as sort of sacred blood. 
but they carry their religion, they wear it with them. And as, as you know, some of, of the audience members may know, but I mean, I guess my work would be part of what's called the lived religion approach. Like religion is lived in our everyday lives. And that's always what I've been really interested in, how people carry their faith with them into various spaces. And the cool thing is that a lot of other scholars right now, a lot of sociologists, as you know, you know better than I do, um, I'm not trained as a sociologist, but there's like a really mm -hmm. great group at Rice, like um, Elaine Howard Eklund, she and her group mm -hmm. are doing a lot with faith at work. And so there's this sort of this burgeoning subfield of religion at work right now. And so that's one of the many areas that I, I try to tap into with, with this project. I also, I also want to call attention to the different ways in which, as you know, from reading the book, that, that the managers and the CEOs and CFOs, the ways that they bring religion with them into the workplace. They try to sacralize mm -hmm. the work at, you know, they try to sacralize the space. They try to, you know, they use language, the lexicon of faith, family, and values. I would say that their lexicon is distinctive though from the workers themselves. And so I try to show how those two sit by side, side by side in these, in these plants, these packing plants. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the, the way I, I mean, I, I just always, I, I like reading, I like stories, I like novels. So I think ethnographies are, you know, I just, for fun, I just like to read ethnographies. So I'm inclined in that direction. But in the study of religion, I always thought that ethnographies were our way of decolonizing religious studies. Because if you look at historically, right, I, you know, you, 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 you were trained in anthropology, right? So you know, you know how for, for most of the religions of human history, we don't have any record of it because people just left it. People just, it, it wasn't an intellectual exercise until Europe, until, you know, we, we started having to, to kill people for heresy, right? So, and, until, until it was intellectualized, it was, it, that's all it was. Right, and, and for, for most of it, and I say this as a Presbyterian, who, who until I did my ethnography and I, I was immersed in that world, I, you know, worship, religion was an intellectual thing for me, right? I, I didn't know religion could be, you know, you, you could worship with your body, right? That, that was something I learned in, in my, my, my ethnography from, from the people I, I, you know, I share, and I share life with for, for all those years, right? And, and I think, I, I think it's, it, to, to, to get at the, the core, right, at the people, you know, like the, the people's religion, right, we, we have to, we have to go and, and walk where they walk and live the way they're, they're living, right, to, to, to collect those stories. Absolutely. I completely agree. And, and you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of your work, Tony. Your book is just so lovely. And I've used it, we've read it in class. So my students love your work. And I love how you just put that, you know, how sort of ethnography within religious studies has been a way of decolonizing and, and decentering. I completely agree. Mm -hmm. I think so much about, and I share this with my own students, the way that I was taught about, you know, the way I was trained as a religious studies scholar um, was very much like Eastern seaboard, you know, you know, everything took place. Um, most, most of the interesting things, the things that we talked about at least, right, took place in very particular spaces. Um, usually it was with white men, what women did and non-whites did was sort of 
I don't want to say superfluous, but it was on the margins. It wasn't taken as seriously, right? And there's been so much great work, as you know, revisionist historians and scholars. So I think absolutely, I think what folks in religious studies like to call the ethnographic turn in the study of religion, which was really right around the time I was in grad school. I mean, I, I got my PhD in, in 2001, which makes me seem really old. I know I'm like dating myself, but you know that, so my training was in the nineties and that's precisely when this was happening. Like I remember getting to meet Karen Brown and practically like wow. kissing her feet, you know, at the AR because <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, she inspired my work so much. I love how she, told a powerful story and how she drew our attention to, to this woman and her community. And so I remember, I remember thinking, I want to do that. And one of my main mentors is Bob Orsi. And I love what he does in his work. He really humanizes religion uh, in his work, you know, Madonna of 115th street, you know, that was a re revelatory thing for me to read as an undergrad. Mm -hmm. And I knew I wanted to go back to work with him for a PhD. And so it's, a, it's, it's been exciting to be part of this ethnographic turn. And now I keep thinking, so what's the next, what's the next phase for, you know, ethnographic work in the study of religion? So there are more and more folks reaching out who maybe weren't trained in ethnographic methods, who, who want to do ethnography. And that's something I hear a lot. So I'm excited that there's so much interest in it and that there's so much interest in people and praxis, not just in ideas, right? And, and the head knowledge um but what people are doing yeah 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 absolutely uh, so so getting back to, to your book your in your opening chapter you include the family you tell us about the family of kareem yeah. and uh i you know as i said i i, I don't think you, you knew but uh, when as soon as i defended my proposal dissertation proposal i took a church i became a, the solo pastor of a country church in virginia rural church in Virginia, right? Really, really country church. Providence Presbyterian Church in Gum Spring, Virginia, established in 1747. And I was the first full-time pastor. Me, right? Me, this guy. Oh and, I but, didn't but, know that. I did not know that. <laughs> I had, they were real farmers, right? You know, that like that was their living. They had cows and, you know, all of, 100%. They would bring me eggs from their chicken, you know, chickens and I, I bought beef from the guy who raised the cow and slaughtered the cow, right? Oh, During slaughtering time, they would bring me uh, their, the sausages, right, from their, their pigs. That. I mean, it, it, was, it was the best, I still say it, it was, it, it was the best years of ministry ever in my life. I don't know. I, I don't think, yeah. you know, I, I think I still have a few years left, but I don't think I'll ever be able to replicate that, that small town country preacher life. It was, it was just wonderful. Uh, and Korean family is, is from that generation, from that type of family. Yes. And so, so I also had a, one of my farmers was also a World War II veteran, right? His wife is still living. She still sends us Christmas cards, you know, the, the <laughs> 90s. We, we still, you know, my, my wife is more in touch, touch with her, but we're still in touch with her. And so, so tell us, wh why did you include this, this family and, and what, what are you trying to say in, in, as, as we compare for the rest of the book with, with, with what's going on in the, the slaughterhouses? Yeah, that's such a good question, Tony. And I love that you had that experience. That's mm -hmm. just, that's really, that's a beautiful experience. Um, I, I thought it was really, the way I think that I can best answer your question is, when I went into 
the research for the book, I really wanted to understand how these Catholic parishes in Washington, Iowa, Iowa City, West Liberty, which is a minority majority, it was the first minority majority, Latino majority city um, in a small city in the state, and then Columbus Junction. I wanted to see how they were or weren't dealing well with integrating uh, Latinos and other non-whites into their parish. And I think that when I when I thought when I thought about Latino studies and Latino religious studies, um, oftentimes Latinos, you know, and I understand why this has happened, are the are the main focus of the book. And it's almost as if Latinos exist in a vacuum and, and not in community with any other group. And I think whenever a field starts, that's really, really important to do that, right? I think we see that in most, you know, like ethnic studies uh, programs, right? Where, you know, you focus, you lock in on the group, the group's history, that's a really important first step, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that, you know, now, and this is, you know, this is my fourth, well, third major ethnography, right, that I've done. I felt like, you know, I, I really wanted to, I've always wanted to broaden out Catholic studies, just like I've wanted to broaden out Latino studies. And so it's like, okay, Catholic studies, a lot of the folks I, I worked with, you know, we could say the majority are Catholic, but I also interviewed a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, Methodists, Presbyterians. Um, I wanted to give us a, a sense of the community in which these Catholics are enmeshed. And these Latinos, you know, families who are in West Liberty and Columbus Junction, which as you know, is a, a major field site, you know, they're in community or not in community with the whites who, who also go to St. Joseph. And so I wanted, I felt like it would have been an artificial thing to just cut out the whites, to just pretend almost as though mm -hmm. Latinos were just kind of in Columbus Junction on their own, going to St. Joseph, because it's a lot more complicated than that. And so mm -hmm. I wanted in some ways it was a lot harder to do this, but I felt like it was really important. So as you know, from reading the book, I mean, the bookends of the book are two women's experiences, um, Rosa and Reina, Rosa coming to the United States to reunite with her husband, with their small child, and Reina who has decided to stay even though her husband has been deported. And, and in the middle, so I wanted to frame the book with these women's mm -hmm. experiences to, to get empathy. Really, a huge thrust of the book is for the reader to have empathy um, for migrants and also to imagine like the work that so many brown and black women and men do for us that we could never do, right? Mm -hmm. But I felt like it was important to include Corinne's story and all these other white ladies I got to know at the church. And you know, I call it the sticky wicket of whiteness in the book, right? I mean, these women hold racist, racist ideas. You know, they do think in many ways, you know, that they're better than some of these Latinos that go to their church and they want to hold down to the power of the church. Their numbers are diminishing. Whereas, you know, the Mexicanos and the Salvadorans, you know, and the Guatemalans, their numbers are, are rising in their parishes and they're not real happy about that. So I thought it was important to show the complexity of whiteness in all its messiness. Cause I think it's so easy for us as scholars, I think to buy into cancel culture to be like, well, that's just wrong. Or I'm just not gonna write about whites because like whites and their history are, you know, just so tainted with racism. Mm -hmm. I wanted to engage in that messiness and to humanize 
Corinne and her family as much as I wanted to humanize Reina and Rosa and all the other Latinos and African refugees. So I wanted to humanize all my interlocutors, not to explain away the racism when it erupts, um, but to just show it. And again, I feel like I'm saying complexity a lot, but just mm -hmm. to show the messiness of it. Yeah, and so I having pastored that church and lived in that, uh, in, you know, for, for many years, right? I, and, and I was in everybody's business, right? I, I was the country pastor. <laughs> so whatever problems, every baby that was born, I was in the hospital. Every person who died, I was at the best. <laughs> like, I was that guy. And, and then during the, and you did this during, during the Trump year. You were still in the field during the Trump year. Yeah. So it, it was painful for me, right, having lived and, and seen them as family, right, to, to have rural whites, right, be, be painted with such, such a broad brush. And even though, even though in my own church, in my, you know, my own people, again, people who I, I would trust with my life and the lives of my children, right, yes. they, they had those exact views, yes. but it's more complicated than that. Absolutely. The, you know the the in but but the the, the big thing that it, the 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 part where where it really stood out for me was when when you described this incident when you were talking in the basement with Kareen and all these white ladies yeah. and then somebody <laughs> comes down yeah right and, and you go talk to her in Spanish yeah. yeah and then you go back to the white group and you know, there's a strong moment of awkwardness. Yes, very that, awkward. That you describe almost as as betrayal to the to the other white people, right? And that's that 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 said a lot to me because I know that context. And thankfully, it wasn't like that for me. I think my my church was kind of proud that they're they're they they had a they had a different pastor that was different from all the other <laughs> country yeah. preachers, and like their yeah. pastor could speak Spanish, right? Because you know, it is a farming community, so there were a lot of Hispanics in the yeah. community. So, so like, you know, when the courthouse needed something, when the school needed some somebody to help, they would call. They would call me, right? Yeah. And uh, and yeah. and so they were proud, right? They were like, hey, you know, my pastor can help in this, you know. So, yes. so I didn't have that. But but tell us more about that incident, and and yeah. I, I think yeah, the. the yeah. What, what, what were the relationships that, that brought to that moment? What was the dynamics that brought to that moment that, that made, made, you, made you feel that way for having spoken Spanish and you know, interacted with, yeah. with a brown person as an equal? Because mm -hmm. that was the betrayal, right? That, yes. that you treated a brown person as an equal. Yes, right? yes. Mm -hmm. and, and these ladies, um, there was a strong politics of place, right? They, these mm -hmm. ladies whom I, I really grew to care about deeply, you know, I learned so much about them and their challenges and struggles, but they would linger. So it was the English speaking mass and then there would be an hour or so before the Spanish and Spanish speaking mass. And none of these ladies could speak Spanish and, and haven't, haven't, wanted to learn to speak Spanish, even though one could argue that, that, that that's highly possible, right? <laughs> to have an intercambio, right? Where you learn it, you know. Um, and I, I started noticing even before that happened, like, oh, they're really kind of lingering, you know, kind of over 
overstaying their welcome. You know, when, you know, the Latinos mm. would, would bring their foods down to kind of put it in the fridge and get ready because after, you know, after each service, you know, there was the coming together downstairs for foods. And these ladies were definitely talking about embodiment, very much sort of mm, splaining, right? They, the way their bodies were, like their arms were on the chairs and they, they, they were making it very clear that this was still their space. And so when my friend mm -hmm. came down, I, wow. I was so happy to see her and I gave her a hug. We were just talking a little bit and, and the way they, it got really quiet and I went back and it was almost like they, they didn't, they didn't know what we were talking about. And I, I don't, I, yeah, I think that the, the betrayal that they, I think that I was a, I, and I don't know if they'd ever really seen me speak Spanish because I was, the two groups are, are very separate in, in, in that parish as in many parishes in, in rural Iowa. But in particular in Columbus Junction, I think a lot of that is because of the town itself. It's much more integrated in West Liberty St. Joseph. And I didn't focus on that parish as much in, um, in the book as Columbus Junction. I think there's more true integration and in, in true what Brett Hoover would call the shared parish space. They're really, they're, they've been really struggling a lot more in Columbus Junction. Now they have a new parish priest, Father Trevino, who I think is really making a lot of inroads. Father Joseph Sia uh, is now in my own Iowa City uh, mm. in a very white parish. And so uh, we're gonna be having coffee soon. So I'm excited to see him. But yeah, that, that betrayal, um, it's one of the things that I write about in the book that I think, in I've never really made policy recommendations in, in my other books. But one of the things that I really try to, to, to say, here's some recommendations maybe if, if, if spaces really want to integrate. I mean, have intercambios, you know, have Spanish English exchanges, you know, have times when um, English speaking white Iowans can maybe learn Spanish. And some of the younger moms actually do are trying to go to the Spanish speaking mass now. They really want to learn. They really, you know, their kids are in, you know, the first communion and confirmation classes with all Latinos. And they, they are really feeling compelled to start learning some Spanish themselves because their kids are speaking it and can, or at the very least can understand it. So it's a bit of, it's a very generational thing. So, um, and these are the old, this is the oldest generation in the church, I think who feels that betrayal. I think their daughters and sons who go to the church don't mm -hmm. feel quite as strongly. Um, and I, I wanted to sort of hold that betrayal and didn't want to dismiss it or, explain it away mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm glad that 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 sort of that you've been sitting with that and I have actually thought about that a lot and just you know again the politics of place and you know I know there's some scholars who've written about like the sidewalk politics like if we're walking down a sidewalk and a non-white person you know I'm always I'm always like walking off the sidewalk into the grass saying you know I'm always trying my best to say hey this isn't just my sidewalk because I'm white mm -hmm. you know but I think that's just sort of the way that we carry our bodies and in the way that we advertise our whiteness and our privilege, it just happens in ways that we don't always understand. And that was a, a really pivotal moment for me as an ethnographer, because I realized at that moment, like, wow, these are really, yes, these are really separate spheres in, in this parish. I don't think I've been one, I've been wanting to see more of a shared parish space. I've mm -hmm. been wanting to see communities coming together. And I hadn't been seeing that very much. Mm -hmm. And this was one of those moments that I'm like, wow, this community has a long way to go to a real like integration and working together. Yeah, I, I don't know if you, if you meant to do that, but including that incident, that, that interaction 
for for me frame everything else like everything else you were telling about these this white families right i thought i you know i get to know them you know you have these wonderful family pictures i and you you get in there and, and you feel the tensions that they're living and then but then that this one incident right it, yes. it frames the whole relationship and you go oh okay okay so that's what that's what's going on and it's both right, right? it's mm -hmm. it's they and they sit side by side and, and mm -hmm. it's very uncomfortable and you know one of our colleagues Felipe Hinojosa he was one of the readers of the book and he, I, I loved what Felipe said in his comments he's like you know no one seems to be fully comfortable in rural America. And I think he's right. And after he gave me those comments, I really tried to dig in more deeply into that. Um, sometimes as you, it takes, it takes an outside reader to like, to like, then the light bulb. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, no one really feels comfortable. The whites feel threatened. Um, the Latinos feel like the whites really don't want them there, you know? Um, so it's just so, but I feel like this is ground zero. I mean, oftentimes, you know, you know, the Midwest is I, you know, one of the reasons why I wrote this book was because I feel as a Midwesterner, um, the Midwest is oftentimes sort of just this flyover place. It's not interesting. All the interesting things go are going on in the coast, you know, and it's all white in the Midwest. And in mm -hmm. fact, it's not. And so I'm just trying to just to show um how we can actually learn a lot about the politics of race and ethnicity and place if we go to these small places. Um, yeah, and I, I totally agree. I, I live in New York City right now, and there are just so many churches that there is no need for that experience, right? So, so the rural churches that you describe, they're bound, they have to, because that, that's the only parish they have in all these right. places. That's but it. in Manhattan, you know, we, Every ethnicity, not 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 just like Hispanics, right? Mexicans can go to church with Mexicans, just Mexicans, right? You, they, it, they, there's a way to divide, right? In, in even within yes. the the a certain ethnicities, right? I mean, and you know, you know, there's still there's still Italian Catholic churches that nobody else goes to, right? There's still right. Irish Catholic that only Irish go to, so right. it's. It, so, so the rural, so your book also is, is an eye opener for, for what's actually happening in rural America, right? Which, which is not the, the, the old school stereotype of just, you know, all these white people, all white people who, who are, you know, of, of certain generation and dying, you know, these are vibrant places that are very multiracial, multicultural, uh, for better or for worse people, you know, push to worship, right? Religiously, religious lives are, are bound to, to intertwine because of the of geography. Yes, you cannot, like, I love what you said earlier, Tony. This is the only place that they have to go. It's just like Tyson. It's, it's mm -hmm. the employer. It's just like the parish. This is the parish. There's one Methodist church. Well, actually there's two. The Burmese have their own Methodist church now. Then there's the white Methodist church. And then there's um, the Catholic church, you know, where we've got Burmese, Mexicanos, Salvadorans, Guatemalans, and whites, like Irish, German, the like Corinne's family. But that's about it. And um, yeah, it's just, uh, you're, you, you're forced to have interactions. Mm -hmm. you, you can't, you have to, right? Walmart, the small stores mm -hmm. downtown, your kids go to the same school. Um, there's one school yeah. so yeah yeah so so let's go let's go inside these uh these meat packing these slaughterhouses and tell us about joe joe reverend uh, father joe joe blay 
yeah. Blake. Oh. Tell, tell us about uh, as his life as, a, as clearly the, the priest, but also as, as you know, the, the chaplain, right? Essentially, yeah. these this, this places. What, what, what's his life like? What is, you know, for, for a lot of the listeners, are, we're, we, you know, many of us are clergy, we know churches, but we don't know what is, what is the father doing? What, what, yes. what is his daily life like in, in, those, uh, in that space? Well, I can't even give some updates of, with Joe because we had coffee just about a week and a half ago, actually. Mm-hmm. He is actually no longer with Tyson. He is the pastor now uh, of the Methodist, the White Methodist Church in Columbus Junction. And he's also in the process of applying to be a chaplain here in Iowa City. He lives in Iowa City. So he decided he wanted to really have his own church and do chaplaincy, but he was at Tyson for about 10 years. Mm -hmm. So yes, Joe's a fascinating guy. And I've gotten a lot of questions about Joe Belay. So he is trained as a Methodist. Um, He's, he's, you know, he's ordained as a Methodist minister. Mm -hmm. He uh, was a prison chaplain. He's Ghanaian, Ghanaian. Um, Mm -hmm. His wife is African-American. They have two children, one's in college and one is back in Ghana with family going to school there. And this was another fascinating, uh, I don't know, just thread that I would have never expected when I first started this uh, book research project. Tyson, um, I think it was Emma Green in, I think it was The Atlantic, had a really great piece on, on chaplaincy programs. And I learned through reading this journalistic piece, I love reading journalism, that Tyson has the largest chaplaincy program of any company in the world. Who knew? In every single Tyson plant, there is a chaplain. Most of these, as you know from reading the book, most of these um, chaplains were also military chaplains. And it's, it's no accident that that's the case because these are men and women who some of them actually experienced combat or they were in volatile situations. They've been in really stressful. Many of them have PTSD. And so they're mm. actually really well poised to be in a meatpacking plant, which is incredibly violent and bloody and loud. And depending on what side of the plant you're on, if you're on the slaughter side, it's really hot. If you're on the fabrication side, where the meat after it's been in the chiller has been chilled two days after the slaughter, it's really cold. And so these chaplains move around the plant. They have their own office. And I was talking with Joe um, about a week and a half ago, and I was kind of saying, so are there things you didn't share with me, you know, that you weren't able to share with me, you know, when you actually worked for Tyson, and not, not so much, but one of the things that he pointed out was the greater number of Africans, and particularly Congolese, at the Tyson plant, and he, and he said, what a lot of people don't know is it used to be, we used to be white and, and black African-American workers in the plants, right, in the, in the mid-20th century, before that, as we know, it was Eastern Europeans primarily, Um, when it was like Chicago and Cincinnati, when they were very urban in dense areas. But when the plants moved out in the 60s and 70s and 80s to rural places, it was primarily white and black working class. Now the new workforce is really um, Rohingya and Congolese, Sudanese um, and Somalians, right? And think about it, the very people who have been through incredibly stressful war-torn violent situations are working in a violent industry and the chaplains Tyson's understanding is well they'll you know these chaplains will understand that 
And so there's Latinos are still a large part of the workforce in Iowa, but more so um, in like North Carolina and Arkansas these days. Um, so there's been a shift even since I did the book research. Mm -hmm. So Joe and I were talking, but yeah, Joe's a really fascinating guy. And, and he said that what he loved about his job was that he could really minister people, you know, the line workers would come talk to him. He would visit their homes. Uh, he went to a lot of baby showers, a lot of weddings. Um, and those are things that he really enjoyed. He felt like he could do the work as a pastor and as, as a minister. But what was difficult for him was that he still was employed by the man, right? By the, mm -hmm. by the corporation Tyson, right? And a big part of his job was having to drive injured workers to the University of Iowa Hospital, which is about 45 minutes away. Um, if a worker, he was telling me the story the other day, if a worker would, would show up drunk or high to their shift, he would have to drive them home. And so these were parts of his job that he was just like, boy, you know, when you see the poverty that so many of these families mm. live in, and then he said, you know, they're getting injured and I'm shuttling them. And the, he goes, you know, this is such a dangerous job. And I asked him the other day, I said, how did it feel, you know, working for, I mean, I asked him this during the field work itself, but I said, I'm wondering revisiting it now. And he said, he said, I, I, I feel like now and just doing chaplaincy on the outside full-time and pastoring. Um, he said, I don't think I fully realized um, how stressful of a job it was. He said, I was so hmm. worried about the rates of injuries and about family members not returning home to their families. He said, it is such a dangerous job. And, you know, the lines, even under our new, the new Biden administration, they're their um, OSHA and, you know, is experimenting with line speed in some of the plants. Columbus Junction is not one of them, but I believe the Perry and Waterloo plants, which ironically are the two unionized plants, Columbus Junction plant isn't unionized, uh, the line speeds are being sped up. And so it's like this experiment, let's see how fast oh. we can run the lines, right? And so I asked Joe about that and he said, yeah, he goes, I don't think the line speeds sped up in his time there, but there's always talk about efficiency and production. And so he's grateful to not have to be part of that anymore. What was Tyson's rationale for hiring a chaplain? Yeah, that's a great question. If you, if you dig into the history of Don Tyson and, and, and mm -hmm. you know, family, right? Um, there's a strong vein of evangelicalism and, and, so from the family's own personal faith, sort of Southern Baptist evangelicalism, you know, it's all about faith and family and wow, let's bring that into the workplace. What if we treated workers as though they were family and attacking workers' spiritual needs? I mean, if you read like the documents from like, you know, like the eighties and like bringing on chaplains into the workplace, the rationale was, in a lot of ways, very religious studies. I've thought about this a lot. Well, you know, workers don't leave religion and spirituality at the door. They bring it in with them. In a lot of ways, that was, in similar ways, it's what I'm saying. I'm saying, yeah, you know, you know, religion, spirituality is brought in on the line. But Tyson took it to the next level. One could say, what was the purpose of this lexicon? Or is this a way of covering themselves? Um, one of the things that I, um, I was filmed for a, a Univision, uh, a, a little documentary a couple weeks ago. I think that's coming out in March. I'll let you know when that comes out. Mm -hmm. 
But one of the filmmakers asked me the question about, about Tyson too and the ethics of it. And, and, you know, when I said, I was, I guess I was feeling a little blunt that day, but I said, you know, I said, you know, I said, we hear a lot about faith and family and values from Tyson and these other corporations who, who some would say have hijacked this language and are using it for their own ends. I said, what I would ask Tyson and other companies who are bringing in chaplains, you know, is this how you would treat your family? That's what I would ask them. Would you speed up the line? Would you have had your workers come in when they were sick? Would you um, have a point system where if they miss, you know, eight days of they're fired, no questions asked, right? And so I try to trouble the whole notion of faith and family and values, which which has been very, which has been part of their brand, right? And I think they're trying to brand religion, that they're they're an ethical, spiritually forward focused company. And look, we've got these chaplains because we really care about these individuals as humans. And I tend to be an optimistic person who really believes, that, you know, that, that people are good and, and they want to have good actions. But I think it's also really important to, to critique and really to really push that. And, you know, what I saw at Tyson was an incredibly dangerous job. Um, I did all my field work before COVID hit, as, as you know, from reading the book. Mm -hmm. And I'm writing some spinoff pieces now about that because I've been in conversations with some of the workers, like how things have been. But, you know, Tyson didn't make the changes that it made and didn't imp implement, you know, protective gear and all the COVID until workers stopped showing up. I mean, it wasn't that they did this out of the altruism of their own heart. They literally didn't mm. have enough workers to, to run to, to, to run the show, right? And so workers were sick and weren't able to show up. And other workers, primarily the Burmese and Latinos, were like, hey, you know, we've got multi-generational family. You know, we've got grandma, great grandma taking care of the children while we're at work. We cannot risk our family members getting sick and dying. And a mm -hmm. it's not worth a paycheck. And so Tyson, you know, shut down for a couple weeks. I think it was in April of 2020. Um, but it wasn't necessarily because they were altruistic. It's because they didn't have enough people coming into work and they had to make those changes. Mm -hmm. So again, I would say, okay, if you're going to say faith, family values really matter to you, then show it, you know, mm -hmm. show, don't just tell. And I think that they've done a better job at the Columbus Junction plant better than the Perry and Waterloo plants, which ironically are the unionized plants, but they still have a ways to go. Hmm. Yeah. So, so based on your research, um, how much agency does the, does the chaplain have and the workers have, yeah. Uh, yeah. especially in terms of, uh, of, of their of religious experience, right? Of, of, of truly, uh, Bring, bring in the holy in this extremely profane and dangerous place, right? Yeah. Is, is there a place for this? And is, is this something, in your opinion, as somebody who's been in there, is this something you would encourage, right? Would, would you say we need more, more, uh, more chaplains, more missionaries into these places, right? More, more chaplains into the, the where, Amazon warehouses, right? When we're hearing these horrible things, right? <laughs> Is this, is this something to, to be encouraged for, for, for the workers and, and for you know, society as a whole? Yeah, what, 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 what are your thoughts? Gosh, that's such a good question. Um, 
And I honestly, it's crossed my mind, but maybe it's been a cop out on my part that I haven't really thought about it, but, but I have, and I'll tell you, I'll give you a little story and then I'll get into your question. I think this will be a way of answering your question. So, so should chaplaincy be encouraged? Should this be part of the warp and weft of like meatpacking plant culture? So when I went to Iowa Premium Beef, it was really interesting because I spent a lot of time there and I really got to know a lot of the line workers and the managers and upper, upper middle management there. And I remember talking to the human resources folks there and because and, they would ask about my time in Tyson, like it was, they were a little, maybe a little competitive. They were curious, but they also would say, what are they doing that we're not or whatever. And I, I said, well, you know, they've got a chaplaincy, a chaplain. And, uh, and it was really interesting because the human resources manager at the time said, well, you know, we don't want to institutionalize any one faith and chaplaincy tends to be Christian. And, and, and the Iowa premium beef plant has a, a growing number of, of Muslim workers, right? Um, because they, they don't, they can't work at the, the hog processing plant. Most of the plants in Iowa are hog processing plants. So the beef plants tend to have a, a higher number and a growing number of, of Muslim workers. And so I included a little vignette in one of the chapters, as you know, and I, I would premium beef that when I was in the women's locker room um, at Iowa premium beef, there was a small group of, of Muslim Sudanese women who had had a little area where they would have their call to prayer. They had their rugs hanging up. And I just so happened when I was in there, they were performing ablutions, cleansing themselves. And there were about four of them and, and they went in. And, and I talked to the human resources folks about this and I talked to some of the women later and the human resources were like, yeah, we're, we're fine with it as long as, as folks, you know, clear it with their line manager, make sure that they can take the break that the line manager knows, then we're fine with that. So I, I took them at their word and, mm -hmm. and talking to the women, they explained to me that, that it hadn't been a problem that they felt like you know, they could satisfy one of the pillars, you know, and that doing the call to prayer. So once, sometimes twice during the shift, they would, they would go down depending on how long their shift was. And so I could see the merits of a lot. I see the merits of acknowledging faith and the importance of faith and having space for individuals to practice their beliefs, especially if it's going to um, give them peace and security on the job site, right? Which is, we know it's a very dangerous job. Mm -hmm. I think that the human resources manager response to my bringing up the chaplaincy at Tyson, at first I was thinking, oh, they're just being competitive, you know? But the more I thought about it, I was like, you know, having a Christocentric uh, perspective, one could say is problematic. And Joe would tell me that he tried, you know, he tries to be very open-minded and whatever, um, you know, the worker's spiritual proclivities were, he would, he, but, but in the end, I mean, his messages were always very Christian laced, you know, very evangelically laced. Um, he certainly had his own perspective. And so I can see the pros and cons of having a chaplain in the plant I think that Joe did feel at times a conflict of interest though. And he said, when I had coffee with him a week and a half ago, he didn't fully realize the conflict of interest that he worked for this corporation. And he really couldn't critique them when he was working there. And, you know, if he ever did, I wouldn't use his name like in some things that I've written, right? Cause he was afraid he'd lose his job, you know? Mm -hmm. Now he feels more comfortable saying, yeah, I." 
he feels more of a sense of relief now that he doesn't have to carry that burden. And so, I don't know, I could see the merits of a chaplaincy in the workplace, but I think there's a danger of having a particular tradition represented and also in such a perilous workplace like meat, meat packing plant, as a scholar, right, we're trained in the hermeneutics of suspicion. I'm trained to ask those questions. Oh, well, like, what's what's the end game here? Why do they want a chaplain? Is it to soften the rough edges? Is it to protect them? Is it to... So I would have a lot of questions about the goals of the chaplaincy program and the end game. So why have a chaplaincy program? Is one tradition going to be promoted over others? I don't think they're necessarily bad, you know, to have, but I just think a lot of questions need to be asked. I think workers would need to be interviewed about the efficacy of this and, but yeah. I, th I think there's a, there's something about, because you said mo most of these chaplains were formerly military chaplains, yeah. right? And, right. And, and I think that there's a parallel, right? What's the point? And the army, I know, you know, I'm most familiar with the U.S. Army. The army spends a lot of resources in chaplain. They have their own chaplain school, right? They, they do a lot to train chaplain because there there is a clear direct need yeah. for for chaplains in the army, which is also a very difficult, hard, dirty job, and you know all, all these other we can add all the moral question components on there, right? And and I think to go from that into me packing, yeah. right? I, I think there's something I don't know what it is. But I think there's a, there's something in there. Yes. For both why the the military wants chaplain and why places, yeah, like Titan. Absolutely. Absolutely. One chaplain that that's separate from religion, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, you're literally in a life or death situation. Like when workers go to work, they I mean they know that you know when you go through the training. I went through the orientation at IPB. You learn about safety, um, you know, lockout, tag out, you know, you learn all these phrases like to shut things down, you, you know, you, and it becomes ingrained in your mind. I was like saying these things for months after the field work, like I felt like, okay, but it's super, super dangerous. And, you know, you can lose a finger or a limb or, you know, it's not that hard, you know, to have that happen. So I think um, the danger, um, you know, and the violence um, mm -hmm. are, are very real in both settings. Um, and in meatpacking plants, right, you're witnessing violence. You're witnessing blood. You're witnessing an animal. It's the only industry, right, where something is like dismembered, where something is literally taken from whole and put in parts, right? Usually things are mm -hmm. built, right? And, and, and so you're witnessing that this whole living, breathing creature becoming something small and unrecognizable, right? And so psychologically, I think um, the violence would really weigh on you in both settings. So yeah, and Joe talked, Joe Blay talked about that. He talked about how his mm -hmm. training as an army chaplain really prepared him. He said, I don't, he said, I don't know how anyone could be a chaplain in a meatpacking plant if you hadn't been an army chaplain. He said, wow. I think you, uh, he, so now that he has resigned because he wanted to be a full-time chaplain on the outside, um, and I think, I think it wore on him, just the, the blood and the violence he witnessed every day. He, he said, I think mm -hmm. they're going to have a hard time replacing me because he said it takes a very particular person who could do this job, you know? Wow. Yeah. 
so so on that on that point uh, you know ethnography can be very draining very emotionally uh, draining work right and for you what you was both you know clearly emotionally but but also physically because you, you were getting up you know before the sunrise and going out there and witnessing all of these and hearing all these these, these stories how how did you take care of yourself during during this time how did you you know process were, were people did you have people who were helping you process and think through through these things i did you know uh my spouse who we've been together a long time but he's, he's a historian and he you know we would talk on the phone um but i will say i felt i felt pretty alone during it and i felt guilty because you know mm. after all i wasn't a, i'm an ethnographer this wasn't my job and i was i walked away you know i it, it was a it was an experience that i had that was really important and it was grueling but i i felt a tremendous so to directly answer your question tony i felt a tremendous amount of guilt and and i really felt like I'm pretty aware of my white privilege, right? Even though I'm from a working class, lower income family today, you know, because I'm a university professor, my situation's very different. And so kind of going back to humility, what we talked about at the very beginning, you know, this, this, this uh, research was a very humbling experience. And I think it mostly in really good ways. I mean, I thought, mm -hmm. wow, I mean, and even, you know, today, when I hear my colleagues today at the university, complain about things and not saying that they don't have a right to complain. I do a lot of administrative work now. I'm thinking, but you don't work on a meatpacking line. What do you, you know, you may, you know, you have an income, you, you don't have to risk getting your limbs cut. And so it put a lot of things in perspective for me. Mm -hmm. um, I actually write about this. There's a, um, an edited volume coming out. It's all, it's a sort of existentialist anthropology. And so I wrote a piece about how I felt existentially, phenomenologically in the packing plant and how I, I felt sick for months afterward. I actually couldn't really write about it. Mm. Um, it was really difficult. Um, those were the last two chapters I wrote because I just felt like I would look at the notebook and I could smell it I, I for months. Wow. Whether it really did smell like the packing plants, um, there was a spot of blood uh, a big spot of blood on one because I and I can't even well, I could show you I know our listeners can't see but I always these little field notebooks I have mm -hmm. hundreds of these and so I was allowed to take notes you know and so I brought like a whole box of these and I was taking notes and I had my pens I wasn't allowed to take photos or anything so I wrote just rapid notes and just smelling the my notes just brought me back and at first it wasn't helpful because it, I was just paralyzed. I couldn't write. But in the end, I really tried to channel that. And, and, and then once the writing started, um, I wrote those two, cha two chapters pretty, fairly rapidly. Once I was able to break through the guilt <laughs> and mm -hmm. that I, I don't have to work at these plants, I was feeling so much guilt and white privilege, like, oh my God. Um, but when it came back to it, I'm like, I always hang up photos of, my interlocutors when I'm writing that really helps me in my accountability like I want to make sure that that they're always foremost in my mind when I'm writing this and so I had a couple pictures that my friends had shared who are working at pecking plants and so I kept those literally taped on my wall I'm pointing to mm. it not that anyone can see it and that really that really helped you know the visual and uh 
but yeah, it was hard. And I, and I, and again, but I feel weird, like even saying that because it wasn't hard because I, you know, it was, it was for a moment in time that I did the field work, but um, I think it was so important that I did that work. I think I'm proud that I did that work and, and something that I, I don't, I share more in this, in this art, this chapter that I just mentioned is um, I've been a vegetarian for 30 years. And so um, that was, um, that was hard, but I'm complicit in the meatpacking industry. My, my family eats meat. I prepare meat for my kids. And so it was also really, I think I felt like this, again, this guilt to like, I'm part of this huge agro-processing conglomerate thing. And how do I become a more responsible consumer myself? Um, and so it made me think deeply about a lot of interlocking issues. Um, and I'm, I'm really, mm -hmm. really glad. I'm very grateful that I had the opportunity to go in the plants. And as hard as it was to see the animals be slaughtered, I think it was really important for me to see that too, you know? So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I always think of the, the, the way that, you know, I, I, at least the way I, I, I rationalize it in my mind is that be, because of our privilege, yeah. we have to, we have to tell the story, yeah. right? We have to go in there. Yes. And, and that's the, the, yeah. the, the burden of our privilege is that we put ourselves in those situations to, to, to observe and and live it yes right for, for the sake of those who who are living it through it yes and for for me i always tell everybody if if it wasn't for the people who gave so much of their lives so that i could do my research i probably would not have finished my phd <laughs> sure. you know but in those moments of you know my life my life is pretty good you know <laughs> things are going well and you know the, when you're just writing by yourself and thinking through all that the, yeah. you know the the, the 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 main thing that mattered was that all these people share their lives and sat there and told me you know heartbreaking stories and for me not to not to bring that to the world and they totally knowing that it would be told yes. to the world right and yes. and i knew if i didn't yeah. And I, I was probably the only person, right? Just like you are probably the only person they'll ever share those stories, those, those heartbreaks and everything with, right? Yeah. And, and if, if it's not for those, those people, right? For those people alone, it, it's worth for, for us. It's, it, it makes it worth it for, for us to go through, you know, whatever, whatever suffering, right? You know, suffering in, in quotes yeah. that, that we have to go through to, to tell those stories for, for the role for the world to to know what's going on i love how you put that it's because of our pr privilege that we have to do this and one your own book is so wonderful and you really bring your readers into the lives of of this these communities and um yeah i i, I really um we do have a responsibility you also use that that word i i do believe we have a responsibility too and uh Absolutely, absolutely, to share the stories with the world. I think, and I think on that note too, something that I kept thinking about, and this kind of takes me back to one of your earlier questions, like when I, when I, when I first said I have to go to meet packing plant, like the, the folks I share that with are like, what are you, are you talking, what are you doing? Like, you know, but I knew I, it was in my gut that this is what I needed to do. Like I just knew, and there's this like powerful, I think what I tell my students here, my graduate students and my undergrads, 
who are interested in doing ethnography, I said, what I love so much about the method is, you know, you learn to trust your gut, you know, and like, just go with that, right? It might go against everything you've read in theory and all this other stuff you've had in, in your coursework. I said, maybe even for my class, I said, but go with your gut because like, I knew it. This was well before COVID hit, right? Meatpacking workers were not in the news at all. And I knew when I was in there, I'm like, oh my God, I had, I had the light bulb went off. I was enticed. And I'm like, I'm like, there are very few white people here. I was one of the only non-Latinos, non-Africans in the whole plant. I'm like, something is going on here. And then at IPB, it was like, oh my God. So I have a responsibility to share what I'm learning here. And it is, a, it was a privilege because very few people, and now after COVID, I don't know if any researcher is mm -hmm. going to be allowed in a packing plant. Like it was, it, I'm very fortunate that I had those experiences. Um, so I totally agree with you. It's because of our, we have this responsibility and um, it just, it's, I'm glad I followed my gut because because I followed my gut, um, the meat packing plant <laughs> field work happened. So yeah. But thank you for thank you for the way you phrase that. I really love that. Yeah. No, this is this is great. Are there any final words you you want the audience to to take away from oh. from your work, your book? Any any yeah. final inspiration for for me eaters, maybe? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, oh, I would just say, you know, people are complicated stories are complicated and the beautiful thing about ethnography yes it's a hard method but nothing worth anything is should come easy right mm -hmm. and so i think that i would encourage you know listeners if you're interested in doing ethnography oh feel free to reach out to me or of course uh dr lynn here as well um i think that it's such a wonderful method and i think that um it's a method too where we're we're, we're able to learn so much qualitatively quantitatively some of the exciting things that are that are happening now post meat packing is like I'm working with a lot of faculty in other areas like on rural Iowa and like flood mitigation and refugee communities. Mm. So since this book came out, I've been put in all kinds of conversations with interdisciplinarily. And 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 so I encourage you all, if you're going to do ethnographic work, feel free to reach out and also just go with your gut, go with your instinct. Stories are powerful. Um it's a privilege to be able to tell these stories. Um, and uh, it really is a privilege. And I, uh, this has been really delightful talking mm -hmm. with you about, I mean, I don't have a lot of opportunities to like talk about ethnography and uh, you know, the book. So this is, I mean, I've had more opportunities to talk about the book, but it's just been so great with the fellow ethnographer. Mm -hmm. You get it on a level that so many folks don't. I appreciate oh, that. thank you. Yeah, no, thank you so much for, for making time. So. Of course. Yeah, and thank you to all the listeners for joining us. We again, we're with uh, Dr. Christine Alban Warren, who is the author of Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland. Thank you again for joining us. Christy, thank you for your time. Thank you, Tony. It's been great. <laughs>
Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.